Hello, everybody. Brian Kabatek back with you and uh, Sean Karnickian on Civil Action. Civil Action is a podcast put on by Kabatek LLP to bring lawyers up to date on important cases that affect your practice, particularly if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, particularly if you're practicing in California. So we cover California cases, both Ninth Circuit, Court of Appeal, California Supreme Court, and the occasional United States Supreme Court decision that has some impact or some effect on your cases. And we try to go over it on a weekly basis, and we try to keep you apprised of these important decisions. One of the cases we'll cover today actually reflects why it's important to stay abreast of the law, because somebody sat on their rights and then they lost a specific right. In that case, the right to arbitrate a case so I don't feel so bad for them. But that happens, and it's important to, to follow the law. And before we get started, just a reminder that we'd like to hear your feedback. We've heard from a lot of you. We still haven't been banned yet from Apple Podcasts, so that's good news, right, Brian? That we haven't used the F word. Yeah, that's true. We haven't been banned. We can use the F word. We don't have to, but we can. We're not going we're to. We're not going to? Okay. This is a family show. Is it? Okay. A lot sure. of people have their kids listen. Right. A lot of kids are really into you know, arbitration clauses, and they're into uh, legal updates these days. So, Important um, part of my youth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back in the early 1900s. Um, so today we have a number of cases. The first one is going to be one about, like Brian mentioned, waiving your right to arbitration or defendant waiving their right to arbitration. Um, next, we're going to talk about handling a claim with an insurance company, keeping an eye out and not uh, signing over your rights or uh, the ability to insurance for the insurance company to write checks to other people. Then we're going to talk about a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal um, arbitration case and a really outrageous outcome, and uh, Brian's going to tell us all about that. Then we're going to talk about CAFA, the Class Action Fairness Act, which is um, a misnomer, I'd say, and uh, subject matter jurisdiction and basically distilling why we don't like being in federal court. Um, then we're going to talk about some of the Porter Ranch, uh, uh, SoCal gas, gas leak cases, and an outcome there uh, for cases brought by some business owners. And then lastly, we're going to talk, uh, talk about mandatory fee arbitrations and whether or not a, uh, it's appealable when you get an order denying uh, compelling, uh, trying to compel an arbitration uh, over attorney's fees. Did you actually read the cases today, Sean? No, we'll wing it. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll do it live. No, we did read the cases. They're actually a group of interesting cases today, and they, they span sort of an interest range. Don't focus on one specific subject. So let's just jump right in first with uh, Javier Nunez versus Neville Group. Uh, this is a motion. This is a case involves a motion to compel arbitration. And um, basically what happened here, and the, the key issue in this case is how long is too long before bringing a motion to compel arbitration? So you certainly can waive your right to arbitrate by certain actions or delays in a case. Uh, there, there has to be a pretty unequivocal waiver of the right to arbitrate. So let's go through the facts in this specific case. Kind of your standard wage and hour class action case, but it had a little twist because it involved a collective bargaining agreement, which means there's a union involved or organized labor in some fashion. And that the the driver in this case, the employee in this case, was a um, was subject to that collective bargaining agreement, and the case got started. It was filed in superior court, and there was no petition to arbitrate. As a matter of fact, let me go through these facts quickly. From April 15, 2015, through April 2016, there's a complaint filed, and there's two court ordered deadlines to file a motion to compel arbitration, which are blown. 
Then uh, they advised the court in April of 2016 that the defendant is not going to seek arbitration. And then in August of 2017, a decision comes down in a case called Cortez. So Cortez is a um, Superior Court decision that was appealed to the Court of Appeal that held basically that, that there could be unmistakable language in a collective bargaining agreement of arbitration, which is enforceable. And, and the timing here is important. When did Cortez come down? So Cortez comes down on August 15, 2017. And why do I know that it's August 15th of 2017? Because it's Napoleon's birthday. And mine. Same thing. And Ascension Day. Same thing. Okay. Yes, yeah. it is. The same yeah. thing. Yeah. And uh, August 15th of 2017, the decision comes down from the court. And then what happens? Um, then you would think that the defendant here would, because this Cortez case allows them now to potentially move this case into arbitration, you'd think that they'd move it into arbitration or compelled to compel arbitration, but they don't. They keep litigating the case. Uh, they engage in mediation. Uh, they engage in discovery, class discovery. Notice goes out to the class. Um, and then eventually mediation falls apart, and then they decide, hey, and when, when, when does that happen? So April of 2018. Many months later, they file uh, their petition to arbitrate after the mediation failed a month earlier. I'm not good at math, but that's like more than six months later. They filed. Very good. Very yeah. good. It's like eight months. It took them eight, eight months, months before I they was filed close. it. And what the court held here is that waivers are not to be lightly inferred, so that there has to be um, a clear indication that there's a waiver. But in this case, there was not only written elections early on to um, waive arbitration, but even after the court of uh, the Cortez case came down from the court of appeal, the defendant didn't do anything for eight months, and it was really that eight months that I think the court focused on more than anything else uh, in this case. So what are the lessons we take away from a case like this? Um, that arbitration can be waived if a defendant engages in a certain amount of uh, litigation in the case in state court subjects itself to jurisdiction. But you can't take waiver lightly. You can't infer it lightly. There has to be enough there. So something good here, actually, I saw this come up in a case recently where a defendant was saying, no, we can't respond to discovery about the arbitration agreement because then we'd be waiving our right to arbitrate. It's not that easy to waive your right to arbitrate. So that's a, that's a good response. And this case is something that's good to cite if you're seeking discovery pre or during I, I just the don't understand why defendants who think that they have the benefit of this apparently fabulous law, if you're a defendant today, to arbitrate your cases, don't very early move for arbitration. That I don't understand to start with, um, unless there's some strategic reason. And in this case, it looks strategic. It looked like particularly because they waited to see if the mediation was going to go anywhere, and when it didn't, they, they moved to, to compel arbitration. That's one thing. The other thing, another important lesson I think to take away from this is the law is evolving all the time. Cases are coming down all the time. And here, let's give the benefit of the doubt to the defense lawyer. They didn't know the law. They didn't read this Cortez decision until many months later. Well, unfortunately, shame on them because the court said, hey, it's still an eight-month delay. You should have known. You're held to know, and you should have done something about it. So keep on top of the law. Read the law. And if you're a plaintiff in these cases, look for affirmative acts that show that a defendant is waiving its right to arbitrate. Yeah. Shameless plug for our podcast because, you know, listening to this, all kidding aside, aside from the shameless plug, we do cover recent things that come out and keeping on top of this might give you the ammunition to come up with new cases that can change the course of the litigation. 
let's go to the next case, yeah. which doesn't necessarily change the course of litigation for anybody, but I thought was an interesting case to pick on um, because some of our listeners do insurance cases, and when you're dealing with insurance cases, you're constantly dealing with getting checks from insurance companies that may have two payees on it, like a lender or a contractor. And in this case, uh, Josevowitz. Yeah, this is going to be fun trying to hear, uh, trying to get Brian to say. Jo- 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 Josefowitz. That's the case. Versus J O Z E F O W I C Z. Josefowitz. Josefowitz. Versus For, Allstate. I well, can just get call Allstate. It the Allstate case. Yeah, we'll call it the Allstate case. So what are the facts in this case? Um, So plaintiff here owned a mobile home that was damaged in a fire. Uh, He had a policy, a homeowner's policy with Allstate. He submitted a claim to Allstate, and he retained a company called Sunny Hills Restoration to perform cleanup um, and remediation at the home. He told some of the facts here, and and this will be important because there's a dispute as to this later on. He told the insurance company that um, they can write checks to Sunny Hill. In writing. In writing, and and that Sunny Hill was to be named on all reimbursement checks, and Sunny Hill was uh, permitted to deposit those checks into its own account. So I'm guessing something bad happened with Sunny Hill and Mr. Josefowitz. That's good. You pronounced it correctly, and that's right. Something bad did happen. They had some dispute that arose. At some point... Um, check goes to Josephowitz. That's right. and um, or, or check goes to Sunny Hill, and Sunny Hill takes it and deposits it and keeps the money, and now Josephowitz is... Suing Allstate. Is, is upset. And saying to Allstate, you owe me the money. you got to give me the money because the guy took the money. Now, whether that's true or not, that's his argument. And there, he sued under some UCC code that allows for a cause of action when a check um, has gone to a payee who no longer has the check. I guess it gives recourse to someone, you know, when there's two payees and someone wrongfully took it. Um, and then Allstate moves for summary judgment. They contend that that code section or UCC doesn't apply because Josephowitz, the plaintiff here, explicitly allowed Allstate to issue checks to the uh, contractor, Sunny Hill. So the court goes into a lot of uh, detail about not just the uniform uh, code. What is it? The uniform commercial cor- code. commercial code. Uniform commercial code. We don't yeah. deal with that very often. We don't. In the plaintiff's world. No. But it is a serious issue because this does happen where these joint two-party checks go out. And um, really, it specifies what the rights are. The court goes through the fact that they're rights, that Josephowitz had signed away his rights, to the contractor, the contractor had the right to collect the check. So whatever the dispute that may exist between Josephowitz and Sunny Hill contractor has nothing to do with Allstate as the ultimate holding here. Yeah, it's it's the lesson to be learned here is if you're acting as claims counsel in a case, um, and some some lawyers do, we typically don't because we try to do bad faith cases. And if you do if you do claims counsel work and you're the bad faith lawyer, you might end up literally the lawyer might end up being a witness in the case. But if you're doing claims handling or claims counsel work, um, you should be careful with what what you agree to with the insurance company because they can then uh, issue checks to people and and they might pull it. And hey, under kudos your here to Justice Icola in the Fourth DCA for actually citing Chief Justice Marshall. In an 1823 United States Supreme Court case, which I don't know how has any impact on here, but if he was trying to cite some um, old, dead Supreme Court justice, he succeeded. Do you remember when that case came down? The 1823 case? No. No. But interesting, I thought one of the wild factors of this case was at the very end of the case. It has very little to do with the specific case, but it's a good lesson learned. And that's that the, um, the, the plaintiff in the case asked the court to take judicial notice 
of several emails that he attached in his reply brief to show that Allstate actually knew of the dispute at the time they issued the check between um, the plaintiff and the contractor and that they ignored it. And he was trying to attach them to the brief. And what the court held here was that may be true. Allstate may have known, but if it's not in the record on appeal, it doesn't exist. And that's the way the Court of Appeal looks at things. So you got to get stuff in your record. And even if it means going back on a motion to reconsider or filing a supplemental brief or some legitimate way to get the information into the record, you need to get in the record. Because if it is in the record in the Superior Court, in the trial court, it's not going to suddenly find its way into the record in the Court of Appeal. All right. It's a good procedural lesson here. Next case is In Ray Hall. This comes out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. It's an arbitration case. Hall spelled H-O-L-L. This case is crazy. Yeah. I I mean, it tests the outer bounds of uh, reasonably conspicuous provisions in these uh, click-wrap agreements you sign online. But I think Brian has a great recitation of how you get to the arbitration agreement in this case. I spoke recently to a number of journalists that come once a year to Loyola Law School for the Journalist Law School program, and I was explaining arbitration to them, and I said, if you are alive today in America, you almost on a regular basis are entering into arbitration agreements. And one way that we all enter into arbitration agreements that we don't want to enter into is if we're going to buy something, we're going to get something delivered, we're going to get a credit card, we're going to get a cell phone, we, we're going to open a bank account, or we're just ordering something from Amazon or, or online ordering. And this case is a perfect example. And it really is outrageous, and it shows how desperately bad the compelled forced arbitration is because the courts seem to be willing to enforce arbitration under any circumstances. So the fundamental facts in this case is that the guy's suing UPS for what he claims are hidden additional fees that were charged because he lived in a remote location and it was a class action case. And here's how the court pointed out what Mr. Hall would have to do to actually view and understand that there's an arbitration agreement. The first thing you'd have to do is click on to the box that has a technology agreement. And once you click onto that box, you'd have to continue in the enrollment by opening some hyperlinks to the controlling version of the actual agreement. So the agreement can change all the time, and you want to go to the controlling version, you have to click onto it. The next thing you do is you have to open up the UPS technology agreement, which turns out to be a 96-page document. Then in that agreement, you would find language in there that says the exclusive jurisdiction for any claim, and this is where you're probably all thinking I'm going to say arbitration, the exclusive jurisdiction for any claim is a federal or state court in Atlanta. But that isn't the end of your analysis. Then you have to go to Exhibit B to the agreement where there would be specificities about arbitration, but there it only says the arbitration would be for Middle Eastern countries with a dispute. So that wouldn't be enough. So you would then need to go to the UPS My Choice Service Terms hyperlink, go onto that, and you'd find a three-page document there consisting of nine numbered paragraphs. Does that three-page document mention arbitration? No, but what that document actually does is talks about a section that says we're incorporating other documents by reference. So you would then go to those other documents, and you would find... Does it have links to those other documents? Well, we're getting there. There's a governing terms, and if you want to know what those governing terms are, you would have to go to the My Choice Service Terms, but there's no hyperlink. So how would you get there? So you would then have to go find them online and find the tariff terms and conditions 
And then you would follow the service terms and conditions that appear at the bottom of the website. So now you go to a different website and you find the terms and conditions and you finally find the section, section 52. So presumably you've gone through 51 sections now of this document that's not hyperlinked, that's on a separate web page to find section 52, which says there, finally... Any controversy or claim, whether at law or in equity, that isn't a small claims dispute will be resolved by arbitration, individual arbitration, not class-wide binding arbitration. Is that ridiculous? It's so confusing that if you look up the online published version of this opinion, the PDF, that's officially from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. This is the first time I've ever seen this in a, in a judicial opinion. The court literally has screenshots of the UPS website to direct you to how to get there, and it's still confusing. If you look at it, it's like a how-to guide, like a troubleshooting guide online for like some complicated piece of software, you know, how to reset something on your computer. And that's how you would get to this. And it's just insane. It's wildly insane. So, so, so what happens here? So at this point, you're believing the plaintiff in the case who says the arbitration clause is so inconspicuous that no reasonable user would be able to notice it. So you're listening to the, reading the opinion, you're looking at these hyperlinks, you're looking at the story, and you go, of course. But then the court of appeals says, well, this is actually a writ, a writ of mandamus like we have in the state court, we call a writ. And there's something called the Bauman factors which weigh heavily against ever granting a petition for writ review by the Ninth Circuit. And so the Ninth Circuit says, yes, this is really horrible, but we're not going to grant writ review. We're going to let the arbitration go forward. They say there's no clear error by the lower court. They say if their job was to review the agreement itself, it would have been easier. So I guess there's something that they kind of did right or something in their defense right there that I don't know if they're implying that they would have found that the uh, agreement here, the language here is conspicuous enough, but uh, they say that's not before us. Our task here is to see if the lower court screwed up. I, I don't know why this doesn't outrage the public. It should outrage the public that now this is how you're compelled to actually never have a dispute and really gives corporate America the right to steal small amounts of money from consumers. But then the Court of Appeal, after all of this, goes on to say, well, he actually did affirmatively check the UPS terms and conditions, and he unequivocally asserted that he was understanding those terms and conditions. So there's a heavy burden, and we're going to allow the arbitration to proceed. It, I, it's speechless. Outrageous. Yeah, I'm speechless. I don't have a it comment. It is. It's speechless. I don't have a comment. All right, before we completely lose our shit here, let's go to a case called Harvender Singh versus American Honda Finance Corporation, also a Ninth Circuit case. This one out of the state of Washington, but very relevant because it has to do with the Class Action Fairness Act. Right, coming, uh, it, again, it's Ninth Circuit, it's CAFA, it's just an illustration of, another illustration of why we don't like being in federal court. Uh, Ninth Circuit uh, affirmed summary judgment, uh, dismissing a class action here. The class action was by this man named Singh, who claimed that these Honda dealerships, including, he named American Honda Financial, or American Honda Finance, and a number of dealerships, and he claimed that they were promising add-ons to cars that were being purchased and not providing those add-ons. So that's the gist of the claim here. Now, what's important to realize is CAFA, so CAFA allows for removal of cases to federal court, and CAFA um, it's a misnomer. We've talked about this before. It's anything but fair to consumers. There's nothing fair about it. Um, and it allows for removal to federal court if the 
if a certain percentage of the plaintiffs or the putative class is from outside of the state, and um, if the amount in controversy is over $5,000, with no regard as to the, uh, the residency of the different parties, of, of the defendants. So even if you have a class representative who's from the same state as, the, as all the defendants, it doesn't matter, it could still be removed under CAFA. But there is a home state exception to CAFA that says that, I, I believe, and, and Brian could clarify this, that if the primary defendant is from the same state as the majority of the plaintiffs, then you can keep it in state court, and uh, there's a, uh, you can't remove it under CAFA. Is that correct? Yeah, and you're doing a great job, and I'm still seething over the last case. But that's absolutely true, is that the primary defendants are citizens of the state in which two-thirds of the class reside. Yep. You can't exercise CAFA. So right. the idea behind CAFA, which I don't agree with, is that federal courts are going to be more fair to corporations who are being clearly victimized in class action cases, um, which I, are not is not true. But... Um, they, they say that in these cases where there's um, the, the primary defendants, and defendants is plural, so they look at the statutory construction in this case. And what they looked at was the fact that the time of removal, it named not only American Honda, but the dealerships in this particular case. And it named a number of different dealerships, and then the court held that the allegations of the complaint on its face show that the dealership defendants, the state court defendants, uh, the same state defendants, rather, are the primary defendants in the case, and then American Honda is a secondary defendant. doesn't mean they're unimportant, but it's a secondary defendant. So its residency kind of didn't matter, and that at the time of removal, and I'm emphasizing that term, at the time of removal, uh, CAFA's home state exception barred the exercise of jurisdiction. So you think, oh, okay, well, they're going to overturn the grant of summary judgment, send the case back, case goes on, hold some people accountable. Nope, that's not what happens. They say, doesn't matter. Well, let's stop there, though, because actually, if that were the end of the case, it would be a good holding. Right. And, and those would. facts on its own are good because it reinforces the fact that CAFA is an absolute, that the ability to bring a case on behalf of um, home state plaintiffs against a home state defendant as long as it's the primary defendant or one of the primary defendants, is going to stay in state court. And that's good because with respect to um, removal and remand, you know, bringing the case back to state court, it's good. And, you know, actually, I'll just, just add as an aside, Sean, that when CAFA came down, which was going on about 15 years now, I thought for sure that um, federal courts were going to use um, any means possible to get rid of cases because federal district court judges have huge dockets. They've got important dockets involving criminal cases and civil cases and all kinds of various issues in between. And I thought they'd use it, and that just didn't turn out to be true. The judges really do hold, do hold on to these class action cases. So a case like this is useful. Now, where the case goes south is that the plaintiff's lawyer in this case, despite the facts and circumstances, decided subsequently to add a federal claim. Voluntarily amended his complaint to add a federal Truth in Lending Act claim, and that gives it subject matter jurisdiction because that's a federal claim. So uh, <laughs> because of that, the Ninth Circuit held that jurisdiction was proper, there was subject matter jurisdiction. The reason I say that this case also illustrates, just as an aside, why we don't like, as plaintiff lawyers, being in federal court is because um, they found the MSJ was properly granted on the merits, 
probably the, the the plaintiff here had like 30 days, less than 30 days to oppose it. They didn't have the California statutory 75 days to oppose the uh, motion for summary judgment. And also, it held that the district court didn't abuse its discretion by denying plaintiff's request for more time for discovery. So the judge goes, no, file your motion for summary judgment, regularly notice motion, you don't get 75 days. Your Honor, can we have more time for discovery? No, go oppose the motion by next week. And, 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 you're done. and by the way, let me preview for you what the ruling's going to be. Yeah. 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 All right, we got a couple more cases to cover today. Um, the next one is the Porter Ranch cases, known as the Southern California Gas Leak cases. That's the JCCP name for them. Um, full disclosure, our firm is involved in these cases. This particular decision, this particular opinion we're going to talk about today, not really something that our firm was involved in, but by full disclosure, we are involved in these cases. Uh, so let me kind of set the table here about what this case is about specifically. So everyone listening should have some general understanding of the Porter Ranch gas leak cases and what happened with that. And this case, though, was very specific. It involved local businesses and apparently in a class action that were suing for lost business. So these were businesses and entities within five miles of the Aliso facility. That's what it was called, the Aliso facility where the gas leaked from. And the claim here for businesses like a Taekwondo studio, a family daycare, restaurant, gas stations, pharmacies, others affected were solely a loss of business. Right, exclusively for that, not for loss in property value, not for property damage, not for personal injury claims, not for emotional distress, not for health claims, nothing like that. And and that's an important distinction here. Right, and really important case because what this ultimately comes down to is a duty case. So whether I agree or disagree with the Supreme Court, I actually, and I know that my colleagues in the case will hate me for saying this, I understand the logic in this case. I understand where they're coming from. This is a duty case. Do you owe a standard of care towards people in these facts and circumstances? And the specific issue is, did you suffer any personal injury or any property damage whatsoever? So let's contrast this with people who had homes in the Porter Ranch. They suffered, or at least alleged to have suffered, property damage. They did suffer property damage and personal injury and nuisance. I mean, the... the, the right, medical issues and inconvenience and, and anxiety and suffering and inconvenience of having to move out. These businesses here, presumably, they don't own the property, or at least they weren't making claims that any property that they owned... Uh, where their businesses were were harmed by it or, or the property values declined or anything along those lines. It's just loss of income. And the rationale here uh, kind of adopted by the Supreme Court and affirming the uh, Second District Court of Appeal. Unanimous where, where, decision, by the way, yeah, Sean. Yeah. Unanimous decision. That means everyone, right? That's a big word. That's correct. That's a lot of syllables. That's correct. Um, the, the rationale Even is Josh it, Groban signed on to this the case. The singer? No, he's a court. He's a Supreme Court justice No, now. I've heard of Josh Groban. He's a singer. He's, he's a famous singer. He's a Supreme singer. Court justice now. Wow. I'll explain the later. Career change? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, the rationale here was that where do you draw the line? Because if if somebody has a duty to somebody else to not harm their, um, their income, somebody that they don't have a direct relationship with, effectively a third party, there's no privity in between them, how can they have a duty to prevent them from suffering uh, losses in their business if they don't directly uh, engage in an act towards them or have a relation or direct relationship so the, with them? The distinction really here is, is it a pure economic loss? And in that case, there would be no recovery versus any kind of property damage or personal injury. 
is the gateway for there to be recoverable damages. So if somebody had a home and was alleging personal injury and I work out of my home and I lost business of it, that would be okay. But because these are simply businesses and they're not claiming anything other than pure economic harm, and um, kudos to the, Cal- the California Supreme Court because in this case, they actually cite the case of Ultramaris. They talk about Justice Cardoza, um, who was then a judge in New York, uh, holding almost 100 years ago in this Ultramaris case that everyone should remember from law school. And if, Sean, if you went to law school, you would have read about this case, no doubt. And in that case... It says you can't go on forever with potential exposure and potential duty, a potential duty to anybody and everybody. You have a duty to people you injure, whether by property damage or physical injury. You do not have a duty to people who simply suffer economic loss. So, you know, this downstream theory has been rejected. And they go on to point that most states, most courts have rejected it, including California. Yeah. Did you ever appear in front of Justice Cardoza? You know, the age jokes, Sean, I mean, they're, they're kind of offensive. They're easy. They're easy. They're cheap. They're but, cheap. But they're easy. But they're fun. Like me. But they're fun. Next, we have uh, a case from the Second District Court of Appeal, state case, Levinson, Arshansky, and Kurtz versus Kim. And this involves a fee dispute between uh, clients and their former lawyers. Now, California law provides that anytime you have a fee dispute, a client has the right to mandatory fee arbitration. Non-binding unless both parties Non-binding stipulate. unless everyone agrees, yes. Right. They're very important because inevitably everyone listening to this who is a lawyer will at some time in their career have an experience where they have to sue or contemplate suing a client for fees. And in cases where that exists, they can um, they certainly have the right to sue them, but you have to give them 30 days notice first of their right to a non-binding arbitration, usually administered by a local bar association. This comes from the Mandatory Fee Arbitration Act, MFAA, and that's codified in Business and Professions Code Section 6200. Um, if you are faced with the situation, we suggest you talk to Ethics Council. We're not going to advise you on that. You know, this, this podcast isn't considered legal advice, but it's important to know that your, your clients need to be given notice of their right to arbitration. And how many days do they have to exercise that right? Within 30 days. Within 30 days of what? Of receiving notice. Right, receiving notice. So within 30 days of actual receipt of notice, and that's important, make sure that it's clear when they actually received it, the client has the right to um, demand arbitration. And if they simply demand arbitration, then you can't sue. You have to wait for the result of this non-binding arbitration. You certainly, post-dispute, can agree to binding arbitration as well. Yeah. So here, um, why don't you tell us what happened here? I, I believe. It was I mean, the facts in this case are, are relatively simple. Yeah. The 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 client who was going to be sued blew the thirty days. Um, there's little nuances, but I don't think they're really relevant to our discussion. They blew the thirty days, and the court of appeals said, uh, "You blew the thirty days. You don't get to arbitrate the case." But here's what's really interesting to me about the case: is they make the court of appeal makes an important distinction in this case between. Arbitration that we usually talk about here under the California Arbitration Act or the Federal Arbitration Act, where it's mandated arbitration, and this specific type of statutory arbitration under the MFAA. And they say they're found in completely different portions of the code, one found in the Code of Civil Procedure, the other found in uh, the Business and Professions Code, the section of the Business and Professions Code that regulates lawyers. So, and, they, and here's the important point here. 
is that a party who moves to compel arbitration, who has that motion to compel denied, has a direct right of appeal under the California Arbitration Act. Yeah, CCP 1294 is a section that says direct right of appeal, no matter why the decision came down the way it did, no matter what's going on in the case. If a motion to compel arbitration is denied, the party seeking to compel arbitration has a direct right to appeal. And here, the court said, since this isn't under the California Arbitration Act or the Federal Arbitration Act, it's under the special statute of the Business Professions Code, there is no direct right of appeal. So this was a, um, this appeal was, was dismissed because it wasn't proper. And then they were asked if they considered it as a writ, and they denied the, the writ. But um, the, the other thing that's important here, just as kind of my final discussion today, is that in the world of arbitration, I think it is grossly unfair that a party who moves to compel arbitration, regardless of how meritless that motion is or that petition to compel arbitration is, has the absolute right of appeal, but the party losing um, a motion to compel and actually being compelled into arbitration has no right of appeal. It's a writ, and those writs are rarely granted. And I think what would be inherently more fair is no right of appeal under either side, whether you're moving or you're opposing it, and let the, the matter go forward. And at the end of the case, you have the right to appeal because it really hangs parties up in their cases when a motion to compel arbitration is denied, and then you spend another two years waiting for the appeal to come back. So maybe when you run for office, you can propose a bill like that. I will not run for office. Senator Cavatech. I will not run for office. Assemblymember Cavatech. Thank you for the, thank you for your Announcing the, the, a new indictment against Senator Cavatech. No, don't ever say that. That's not even <laughs> funny. Let's move on. Actually, that's all we have for today. Uh, as always, we appreciate you listening. We appreciate your feedback. It's important to us that we hear something back from people when they uh, when they hear this. Tell us what else you'd like to listen about. Uh, tell us what, where you like us going off off track. But we're um, we're very anxious for your feedback. You can subscribe online wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can leave feedback. You can contact us directly. You can reach us at kbklawyers.com or online on all social media platforms at Cabotech LLP. So we'd love to hear from you.